you have your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 45 through 56 is what I'm going to read today, although the sermon will focus on verses 45 to 52, the story of Jesus walking on the water, which I'm sure you have heard about, at least. Today we're going to try to understand its meaning. This is the word of the Lord. Immediately he made his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making painful headway, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. Have you ever heard of a watershed moment? A watershed moment. Have you ever heard of that phrase? It's an idiom. Uh, it comes from this idea that a river, for example, at a certain point, some of the water may shed off into another direction. You may have a fork in the river. And when you get to that place where the water sheds, you have to make a choice. You either go in one direction or you go in the other. You can't go in both directions at a fork in a river. You've got to choose one. And whichever one you choose is going to determine everything about the journey going forward. That's a watershed moment. We, we use it as an idiom to describe big events in our lives that happen where the choice is very starkly laid before us. Well, it's interesting, <clears throat> when you read the Bible, God has his people often in watershed moments. And for some reason, he chooses often to put them in those moments when they're on the actual water. Uh, God likes to deal with people on the water. And you can make of that what you will. Maybe uh, he, you know, fishermen and boaters are close to his heart or something, I don't know. Uh, but God loves to meet his people on bodies of water and do amazing things that cause the fork in the road in their lives. You can probably name many stories in the Bible like this. This is one of them. We'll talk about another one as the sermon goes on. The disciples are forced into the boat, it says. They're made to go across the sea, and they get into trouble in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. And it's there that Jesus shows them and proclaims to them who he is. And they have to decide, are they going to believe in Jesus for who he is? Or are they going to keep on believing in the Jesus they want to have? 
you got to choose. You can't have Jesus both ways. You got to either have him as he really is, or you got to keep on doing your own thing, and that's really no Jesus at all. If you look at your bulletin, I want to show you three things from the story, all of which shows us that knowing Jesus for who he is is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel message. First of all, we're going to see the identity of Jesus in verses 50 or 45 to 50. Then we're going to see the heart of the gospel in verse 50, the second part. And then we're going to see uh, the nature of faith in verses 51 through 52. Let's talk about these things together. The heart of the gospel is knowing God through Jesus Christ. First of all, the identity of Jesus is revealed starting in verse 45. Now, he reveals himself through actions. And if you think about it, that's the best way to show who you are is through your actions. Um, Have you ever introduced yourself to someone for the first time? Of course, right? We all do this when when you first meet somebody. Maybe you're at a new job or a new church or a new neighborhood and you go around meeting people or maybe you're sent by your work to one of those lovely conferences that we all love to go to where you have to wear the hello my name is badge and everybody has to go around and everybody says the same thing right I am Stan I'm from Florida I have a wife and four kids I'm a pastor and it goes to the next person and there in in those early meetings there is never any expectation that the person's going to actually know you, right? And you have no expectation that you're actually going to know them. It's just basic preliminaries. It's only words. And sometimes maybe some of the things they're saying aren't even true. We don't know. We have no way to back it up. The way you get to know a person really intimately is by being with them over a long time, watching them act. Because words can be cheap. Actions are more expensive. I'm not saying words aren't important. Of course, you have to talk to people to get to know them. But watching what they do shows so much. And here it is. Jesus puts them in the boat for the express purpose of showing him something that he does. Verse 45 says he made them get into the boat. Strong word. He forced them to it. Uh, John's gospel adds the extra detail that After Jesus had fed the 5,000, the whole crowd wanted to make Jesus king on the spot by force. They were so excited that he had fed them loaves and fishes, they wanted to make him king. And John tells us that's the reason why Jesus forced the disciples to get away from there. And the reason why he quickly got away from there and went up on a mountain by himself to pray, it tells us in verse 46. Because their idea of a king was not Jesus' idea of a king. Their idea of Jesus is not his idea of himself. And so he forces the disciples into the water so that he could show him them who he really is. And when they get out of there, look at some of the details. And I want you to tell me whether you've heard this story before. Have you seen this movie before? Jesus sends his people into a trap on the water. Jesus, who is God goes as if he's going to go right past them, ahead of them. Only when they cried out, he sees them, and then he comes back behind them with them so that they can go safely across the water to the other side, at which point Jesus tells them who he is. Have you seen that movie before? Uh, you know, if you've, if you've been around the Bible a long time, immediately, what do you think of? 
the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14. I mean, it is a transcript of the previous film. In fact, some of the details Mark gives us are really there, just like the green grass last week. They're really only there in order to remind you of that previous event. They're not, we don't really need to know some of these details, but they're told to us so that we'll remember, wait a minute, Jesus is doing the same thing Yahweh did. He's doing the same thing Jehovah did. The great God who delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea. There they were, trapped against the sea, the Egyptians bearing down. God goes ahead of them in the pillar of fire and cloud. And then when they cry out, he goes behind them and blocks the Egyptians and then sends a strong east wind to split the sea. And they walk against the wind all night long over to the other side. And then finally, the waters come down and God shows them, I am that I am. That great name of God, which is where we get the, the name Yahweh or Jehovah, by the way. That's just a translation of the, of the word in Hebrew, the transliteration of the word that means I am. It's fascinating in this story that Jesus himself uses that phrase about himself in verse 50, where it says, it is I, it's just two words in Greek, I am. Jesus is not just saying, hello, my name is Jesus. I'm from Bethlehem and now I live in Nazareth. He is showing you the deep things of who he is by presenting his calling card as God. He's laying down his identification and saying, look, the thing that God does, I do. The thing that God did for his people 2,000 years ago, I am doing today for my people, my 12 disciples. I am the God who, as Job says, rides on the wind and walks on the waves of the sea. That's from Job chapter 9. Only God can do it, and Jesus is that one and only God. Now, here's my encouragement to you, and maybe even a challenge this morning. Make sure you accept no substitutes to that Jesus and to that God. Accept no substitutes for the Jehovah of the Bible. Accept no substitutes for the Jesus who is God and man in one beautiful, glorious person. You say, well, why do you challenge me with that? Because the human heart is good at trying to substitute stuff for God. We're real good at it. The Bible calls it idolatry. And it says idolatry comes in various forms. You can take a separate thing from God and try to make it God. You can do that with just about anything. Or another way to do idolatry, and this is the second of the Ten Commandments, is to take the real God and make him what you want him to be rather than what he is. Right? The first of the Ten Commandments tells you not to take something else and treat it as God. The second one says don't take God and make him what you want him to be. Take him as he is. Accept no substitutes. Our hearts are so prone to trying to chisel the things off of God that we don't want to be there. As a pastor, if I heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Pastor, my God would never do X. My God would never do Y. And usually the X or the Y is something the Bible says God, in fact, does. This is a red flag. It's a red flag to notice in your heart when you think that way. What you're trying to do there is you're trying to conform the great God to your own ideas. 
And in doing so, you listen to this, in doing so, you may make God more accessible, but you'll make him unworthy of accessing. You may make God more believable, but he'll be a God that's not really even worth believing in. Because he's a God that on the other side of it is your own hand with your own chisel and your own hammer. You made him, meaning he's not real. There is one God who has revealed himself through his son and in his scripture, except no substitutes. As a pastor, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. Pastor, if God really loved me, he would do X for me. And usually X stands for something the Bible never says God promises. Red flag. What you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do when I say that, is I'm trying to make God conform to my expectations. Again, I'm taking the chisel out, chiseling off the parts that I don't like, trying to add the things that I do like. I've also heard it thousands of times. Pastor, at the end of the day, God, I know just God just wants me to be happy. And by the way, I've already figured out what he needs to do to make me happy. And normally, again, the thing that we think he needs to do to make me happy is something in the Bible never says, even even it has anything to do with happiness. What are we doing there? We're trying to make God conform to my goals. The disciples had a watershed moment here. They could not keep, they could not continue to think that Jesus was whoever they wanted him to be. What they were being confronted with now is that Jesus is the one and only great I am. And they were either going to take him straight or they were going to have him not at all. That's important. I mean, you know, I don't want to rush through this sermon because I want you to just stop and think about that for a moment. How important it is to recognize that Jesus is God. And that God is one and only. We sang it many times this morning already. He is holy, 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 meaning there is no one like him. Our chisels are not worthy to chisel a God. Forming a God is above your pay grade and above mine. Our pay grade is simply to receive God for who he is. As the character in Chronicles of Narnia says about the lion Aslan, God is good, but he is not safe. And the domestication of God is trying to make him safe, domesticated, somebody that I can fully understand, somebody that, I, that fully jives with everything that I want. That's not a real God. The God of Scripture is the God who approaches us with infinite speed. The God who rides the wings of the wind, who walks upon the waves. The God who is able to walk faster on the water against the wind than we're able to row the boat. Which is amazing, right? I mean, they're going against the wind and here comes Jesus past them walking faster than they're rowing. Just a subtle reminder of why we need God straight up and not confused with our own petty ideas. That's the first thing, the identity of Jesus. But secondly, let's go to the heart of the gospel here, because there in verse 50, Jesus makes a very astonishing statement. Uh, in verse 49, they had thought that he was a ghost, of course. I mean, you know, think about the disciples here. It's the middle of the night. They've been rowing all night. 
against a wind. They're getting nowhere. They're in the middle of this lake, which, by the way, wasn't just a small lake. I mean, the, the Sea of Galilee is big. That's why they call it a sea. It's uh, not quite as big as Lake Okeechobee, but it's in that same category of lake, except Lake Okeechobee is only 14 feet deep at its deepest. The Sea of Galilee is 150 feet deep. It's a deep lake. It's surrounded by mountains. And so when you're out in the middle of this lake and the wind starts whipping, you could, you could die very quickly. I mean, this is a scary event. And then to suddenly look up and you think you got a ghost there. I mean, I think everybody will agree, adding a ghost to any situation doesn't make it better. Does it? I mean, I, I can't think of a situation where all of a sudden, boom, ghost makes it better. It goes, it's infinitely worse because now you're not just scared of the natural, you're scared of the supernatural. And yet notice what Jesus says in verse 50 to these scared disciples. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then he gets in the boat with them. And the sea is calmed. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus is giving us a gospel Oreo right there. If I can put it that way. A gospel Oreo. Take heart, do not be afraid. Those are the great promises of the Christian good news. They stand for salvation. I mean, to take heart means to... Get courage when you, courage doesn't make sense. It means to be uh, assured when ordinarily you're not assured. To be confident when you're not confident. To, do, to not be afraid is the opposite of that. It, it's to, to quit you know, being shaken by things that ought to shake you. Those two statements are miraculous promises from God. But they both depend, just like an Oreo, on the filling inside which is the simple two-word statement of Jesus, I am. What's the lesson? Simple. You cannot enjoy salvation without knowing the person. You cannot enjoy the, the true and lasting blessings that God promises us in the gospel without knowing intimately the person at the center of the gospel. You can take heart temporarily without Jesus. You can not be afraid temporarily without Jesus, but it's temporary. I mean, I realize somebody might say, well, I'm at peace. I, I, I'm not afraid of anything. And it's not really Jesus that gave me that. I'm just a strong person. I'm just a really bold person. Okay. That's easy to say when you are sitting in an air-conditioned room this morning. That's hard to say when you're in the middle of a 150-foot deep lake, in the middle of the night, rowing against a very stiff wind, and you thought you saw a ghost. What the gospel promises is not just temporary circumstantially based courage or circumstantially based confidence. I have done well, therefore I'm confident. It doesn't just promise that. It doesn't promise nothing's going wrong, therefore I'm not afraid. The gospel promises courage even when everything's going against you. When your back is against the wall, it promises no fear. 
The only way that can be given is to know intimately that one who is called the great I am. The one who led Israel through the wilderness and through the Red Sea and the one who became incarnate in in Jesus Christ and led his disciples, scared as they were, across this smaller sea. And he's the one that promises to be in your life. That's that's, That's the gospel. You've probably heard that word before. You probably know it means good news. Maybe you know that. You probably also know it's a style of music now. (laughs) But you might not know that the heart of the gospel is actually a relationship with a person. It's not just about going to heaven when you die. It's about knowing God now and forever. Which is actually the whole reason why you want to go to heaven when you die, because he's there. And you can get to know him even more. God is offering us a personal relationship with himself. And from that relationship comes courage, confidence, assurance, joy, peace, uh, something to to stave fear away. It's amazing. Uh, Have you ever heard of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? It's in our hymnal. You could could look it up if you wanted. You could find the, the lyrics in there. At the very bottom of the page, you'll see the name of the man who wrote it. Horatio Spafford was his name. He wrote it in the 1800s. Do you know the story of why and how he wrote that? You, probably, you might have heard this. I think at some time, once upon a time, I used this before. Maybe you were here, maybe you weren't. But Horatio Spafford was a victim of the great fire of Chicago in the 1800s. Um, many people's homes were burned. He lived in Chicago. He was a fairly wealthy man. Uh, he was an elder in his church. He if you know the name D.L. Moody, he was a good friend of D.L. Moody and helped to fund most of his tours, uh, preaching tours that D.L. Moody did. But he lost a lot of his home, and so he sent his family. He stayed back to help recover. He sent his family on a ship over to England to wait for him. On the way over, the ship went down because it got struck by another ship in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. All of his daughters died in the waves. Only his wife survived. She made it to London and sent one simple telegram, I saved alone. Four daughters, gone. Wife survived, heartbroken in a foreign country. You don't even have a house. He gets on a boat. He goes to meet his wife to comfort her and to try to figure out how to pick up the pieces. And as he sails over the area of the ocean where his daughters died, he wrote, It is well with my soul. Think about the lyrics. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, even so, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Now, you would be excused for thinking Horatio is crazy. For feeling that way and expressing thoughts such as that at such a tragic moment. And yet, the secret to Horatio's sanity... And the secret to his faith in the midst of that tremendous trial was that he personally knew the great I am. 
through Jesus Christ. Personally. He had walked with them. He had talked with them. He had listened. He knew that God had spoken through the ages. And it was put down in writing in this Bible. He knew that Jesus Christ was God who became flesh so that we could see him in action. And he clung to that. And he, and he talked every day with God. And he listened from the scriptures to God. And when he got to that moment, he was ready to know. I can take heart and I don't have to be afraid. This morning, if you do not know if you have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, that is the first order of business in your life to resolve. Please do not rest until you have resolved that question of whether you're going to know him or not. So important. If you do know him, please know that you need that relationship built up every day. Not just once, it's like any other relationship. You need a daily build. Uh, Paul, at the end of his life, wrote in the book of Philippians, here's what I want. I just want to know him. I just want to know Jesus. And someone says, Paul, you already know him. You're his right-hand man and have been now for decades. And Paul says, no, I just, still want, I just want to know him. When I get up every day, I, all I want to do is know him. And I want to tell you, that is the reality of life. You will finally get past the sinking sand and begin to hit bedrock in your life when you realize it's all about knowing God. And that that gift has been offered to you and even given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, where does knowing God rank on your list of priorities? Where does knowing God rank on that list of priorities? Is it the number one thing? Is it even on the list? It's the greatest business before us. We've seen the identity of Jesus and the heart of the gospel. Let's now finish by looking at the nature of faith. Verses 51 to 52, we read something confusing. If you'll look at those verses, and what is confusing is the disciples' confusion. It's amazing that they saw all of this, and yet they were still befuddled. Verse 51, and, they got into, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, it says. Um, which, I actually don't like that translation in the ESV. I don't often uh, critique Bible translations because these people are way smarter than I am who made it. But in this case, I think they could have done better, and actually some of the other translations do better, because in Greek there are six words here instead of two. It literally says, they were greatly in confusion within themselves confused. They were greatly in confusion within themselves confused. King James Version, if you look that up, the old one, it, it tries to get that out like that, you know, very... Very confusing way to describe confusion. Just to underline the amazing fact that the disciples had seen Jesus feed the 5,000. They had seen him walk on the water. They had seen him calm a storm now twice. And they still don't know how to make hide nor hair of it. Why? Look at what it says. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand. 
about the loaves. Of course, they knew what Jesus did when he took the five loaves and the two fishes and he broke them and blessed them and gave them and fed everybody. They knew it was a miracle. That much they knew. But they did not understand what it meant. They didn't get that Jesus was comparing himself to the God who fed Israel in the wilderness with manna. They didn't get that. And here they didn't get that Jesus was comparing himself to the great I Am who led Israel through the Red Sea. They didn't understand it. It went way over their heads. It left them more confused than where they were before. Why? Look at what it says. Their hearts were what? Hardened. When I was a, a kid at, at our house, we had a big blue book, hardcover book. It was the, the medical book. It was, uh, was kind of like kids. It's like WebMD, but before the Internet and before Wikipedia, you had this book that you looked in it, and it had all the different things that can go wrong with the human body and mind, all the diseases, all the injuries, diagrams, charts. It even had the symptom charts where you could answer yes or no and figure out what you got. You could be your own doctor using this book. I'm a big nerd. I used to read it all the time as a child. I don't know why I was interested in it. I didn't ever want to be a doctor, still wouldn't want to be. But I enjoyed, I guess, just fascinated by how many things could go wrong. By the way, you know, lots can go wrong with your body. Don't be surprised when it does. <laughs> uh, the chances are pretty good that something's going to go wrong with you. Probably some things are going to go wrong with you. Well, one of the things I noticed as a kid, and one of the things that fascinated me, is that some of the things that could happen were very, very minor. And then yet, some of the things would, were very similar to those things could be very, very major. So that you may just have indigestion, but yet you feel like you're having a heart attack. Uh, one is extremely minor, the other is massively major. Well... The Bible is more than this, but I would say the Bible is, in part, a spiritual medical book. Outlining for us the various cases and conditions of the human soul. The number one ailment, the most dangerous and deadly of all the ailments, is the curious case of the hard heart. The Bible says everybody is born with this condition. Everybody is born with a hard heart. That includes you, because you're a part of everybody. And it means that your heart is impenetrable. Your heart is unable to be molded in the hands of the maker. This happens because sin Sin deceives, sin enslaves, sin desensitizes us to God. It creates calluses on the heart so that we can see God, we can hear about God, we can feel the presence of God in our lives, and yet it doesn't change us one bit. It just bounces off. The hard heart. 
Even the 12 disciples, chosen specifically by Jesus to be the first leaders of the church, suffered from this condition. It's right there in black and white in verse 52. Their hearts were hardened. What does this tell us? This tells us, and this is a huge lesson for you to learn, faith in Jesus does not come naturally. Faith in your life, I don't know how you think about faith. I mean, I know everybody's got many different ideas of what faith even is, but faith is not like a spigot that you can just turn on and off at will. I'm going to have faith today, and it flows out perfectly, and then I'm not going to have faith, and you turn it off and it doesn't flow. No, there is a massive blockage in the human heart to prevent faith from flowing. Here's the only solution. God must come and bring a fresh softening into the human heart for you to be ready to hear and ready to receive his message. He must soften you. The Bible calls it being born again. The Bible calls it being renewed. The Bible literally says God reaches into our spiritual chest and takes out the stony heart and puts in a fleshy heart. So that we can receive the message. The disciples needed this. We do too. Every human being needs this spiritual heart surgery. In fact, it even says once you have this heart surgery and begin to have faith in Jesus, you still need God to confirm and strengthen and establish your faith every day in order for you to keep having it. Because the hardness of heart is a recurring condition. It doesn't go into complete remission when you become a Christian. It makes a comeback. And you have to always fight it. That's what Hebrews 3 says. Beware of the deceitfulness of sin, lest you fall away from God and become hard. Speaking to Christians. God gives the gift, the supernatural gift of faith, which then his own hands have to soften to prepare us. That's how dependent we are on the Lord. That's, that's the nature of faith. That's why it's difficult for us to believe, and that's the reason why God alone can make the way for faith to flow in your life, to, to cause you to take heart, to cause you to not have fear, because you have come to settle on the great I am by his own gift. Think about it. Grace alone which is another way of saying God's work alone can put you into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and keep you in that relationship. Wow. There are certain ways that God has said, this is how I normally work my grace into hard-hearted people. I'll list them out. The Bible, prayer, the fellowship of the church, including the sacraments of baptism and communion, which form our, the, the boundaries of our life together and, and show us what our life together is supposed to look like. All those things are the ways God has said, I'm going to show up. The Sabbath day and Sundays is the way that God has said, I'm going to show up with my people. If you come there, I'm going to stretch forth my hand and soften hearts. So let me ask you a few questions. Number one, do you realize you've got hardness of heart? Have you been convinced of your own hardness of heart? Second, 
do you marvel at the grace of God to actually work softness into your hard heart? He actually did it. You know, he overcame it. He got into the boat with you and the storm calmed. You know, the, the heart became soft and you listened. Third question. Do you diligently use those ordinary means of grace that God says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to keep softening? Do you go to the Bible? Do you go to church? Do you go to prayer? Do you go to singing? Do you go to fellowship and caring for one another using our gifts? Those are the ways that God makes the way soft. Now somebody might say, well, I think God can do it without all those things. And of course he can. I mean, who am I to say what God can and can't do, right? All I'm saying is God has promised ordinarily to do it in those ways. And to not go to those ways is to tempt God. And I would strongly urge you not to ever tempt the Lord. Ever. Don't put him to the test like that. Do what he says. Putting him to the test is very dangerous. It's the, it's the first and main way to keep a hard heart. It's like saying, I don't need to get in the shower. I'll just wait till it rains. You can do that, but I can't tell you when it's going to rain. I can't tell you whether you're going to be at that moment to be able to stop and shuck the clothes and get out there and bathe. I, not to mention, are you going to get arrested for doing that? Probably so. Here's the thing you ought to do. You've got a little cubicle in your home that you know when you turn the knob, the water is going to flow and you're going to get clean. Why in the world don't you get in there? The ordinary means of grace are like that. The path to the softening of the hard heart. The disciples are in this situation. They're still not fully soft yet. We're going to see over the next two chapters, Christ continues to soften them, at least 11 of the 12. One of the 12 disciples will never get soft. He will remain hard and he will die in his hardness. And that is an illustration that there's a fork in the road, a watershed moment for all of us. Either A, the heart gets softer, or B, we stay hard. All of option A is by grace and grace alone. Option B is what happens when we do it ourselves. <laughs> like Judas. Wow. Do you see it? Do you see the identity of Jesus and why a substitute is not worth your time? Do you see the heart of the gospel, how knowing Jesus is what this is all about this morning? That we're wasting our time if we're not getting to know God personally through Christ? And then lastly, don't you see faith to be a miracle? And don't you want to show up to the ways that God wants to work in your heart? I mean, you've got a hard heart. And I do too. Amen.